Crime Happens contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Happens, where we uncover the evil that surrounds us. I'm your host, Chris. A woman, married with two children, goes missing for three weeks. When a hiker finds a Ziploc baggie filled with blood, latex gloves, and metal shavings in the woods behind the woman's home, her missing person's case is blown wide open. On Thursday, February 8, 2007, Tara Grant was in Puerto Rico on a business trip. She'd been working there all week and was scheduled to return home Friday night. She and her husband, Stephen Grant, called each other several times throughout the day on Thursday and into the night. And the phone calls continued on Friday. During these conversations, they began to argue about Tara's traveling. Grant said he was angry because he thought Tara traveled too much. He wanted her to spend more time at home with him and their two children. Grant and Tara were living in Macomb County, Michigan, which is in the metro Detroit area. After a short layover in Newark, Tara finally made it home late Friday night. It was February 9th, 2007. According to Grant, when Tara got home that Friday night, she began to unpack her bags and get ready for bed. While she was unpacking, she told Grant that she needed to head back to Puerto Rico on Sunday because she had an early Monday morning meeting. Grant was already upset about her frequent business travel, and this announcement just pushed him over the edge. He also accused her of having a sexual relationship with Lou, her co-worker. They got into a big argument, and according to Grant, Tara left the house. It wasn't until February 14, 2007, on Valentine's Day, that Grant called the Macomb County Sheriff's Office to report that his wife, Tara Lynn Grant, had been missing for five days. He told the police that this was not the first time his 34-year-old wife Tara had left home like this, which was why he had not immediately reported her missing. He told authorities that on the evening of Friday, February 9th, he had overheard Tara talking with someone on the phone saying, I'll meet you at the end of the driveway. He said he saw her get into a dark-colored car that drove off and that he had not seen or heard from her since. Tara Lynn Daystramp was born in Michigan on June 28, 1972. Friends described Tara as being an exceptional student and athlete, a cheerleader, and a former basketball player. She's goal-oriented and involved in many extracurricular activities and always determined to make something of herself. Stephen Grant was born January 18, 1970. Grant's friends describe him as fair but mediocre both in school and later at work. They believe he was jealous of how successful Tara was in her career. Friends also say that he was a bit clingy or needy with others around him. Tara Lynn Daystramp met Stephen Christopher Grant while she was a student in the business school at Michigan State University. 
She graduated from Michigan State University with a bachelor's degree in business. Stephen Grant had recently left school to take a job working in the office of former state senator Jack Faxon, a Farmington Hills Democrat. The couple dated for a few months before Tara moved into Grant's Okemo apartment. Grant stated, quote, I couldn't find another political job. That was right after 1994, the year the Democrats lost their shirts. And there were a lot of out-of-work Democrats. So I moved down here to work for my dad, unquote. Grant's father owned a tool and die shop in Mount Clemens. Tara married Grant in September of 1996. Many of Tara and Grant's friends didn't think they were very compatible as a couple. They believed that the Grant marriage of nearly 11 years was plagued by jealousy, rampant insecurity, and even hints of emotional abuse or manipulation. Grant claimed that in the beginning of their marriage, life was difficult. The economy was in a slump, and it was very hard to find a job. Fortunately for the Grants, Tara landed a job with Morrison Knudsen, which eventually was acquired by the Washington Group International. Washington Group International was an American corporation that provided integrated engineering, construction, and management services to businesses and governments around the world. Although her job as an operations manager required that she travel frequently for business, Tara loved it and was quickly moving up in the company. As Tara climbed the corporate ladder and traveled the world, Grant complained that he saw less and less of her, but had learned to deal with it. In November of 2000, four years after getting married, Tara gave birth to their first child, a daughter. Then in November 2002, she gave birth to their son. In 2007, Grant and Tara had come a long way since living in his Okemo apartment. They'd been married for 11 years, had two young children, a girl six and a boy four, and Tara's career was really taking off. By this time, Tara had become the breadwinner in the family, earning more than $100,000 a year, while Grant cared for the children and worked at his father's tool and die shop part-time. Apparently, Grant liked to refer to himself as Mr. Mom, but he actually had quite a bit of help with the children. In fact, five months earlier, Tara and Grant had hired Verena Dirks, a 19-year-old live-in au pair from Germany. When Grant finally reported Tara as missing, he told authorities that he had tried to call her many times, but she wasn't answering her phone. Tara had not shown up for work, and her family had no idea where she was. Everyone was extremely concerned by her disappearance. Disappearing without a word to anyone for days at a time was not normal for Tara, as Grant had told the police. In fact, it was completely out of character for her. Over the next couple of weeks, Grant participated in almost daily press conferences in a seeming attempt to put the spotlight on Tara's case. But authorities were quickly becoming suspicious of Grant. On February 16th, two days after Grant reported Tara missing, Verena Dirks was brought into the sheriff's office for questioning. That very same night, Dirks' employment agency told her to leave the house. She didn't want to leave and ended up spending the night with Grant. She didn't leave the house until the next day. 
Dirks returned to Germany on February 21, 2007, just two weeks after Grant filed the missing persons report. Police came to the Grant home the night he filed the missing persons report to follow up. Grant gave police permission to search their home looking for Tara or any signs of foul play, but authorities had no luck. Detective Pam McLean told True Crime Daily in 2017, quote, When we first got to the house, Stephen's very nervous. He was very fidgety. He was trying to be over-cooperative, and the more questions we started to ask him, the more nervous he became, unquote. Following this initial search of the Grant home, he stopped cooperating with police, even though he was attending daily press conferences. Police continued their investigation and checked all the usual places, hospitals, airports, morgues, looking for Tara. They even checked the woods in the park behind the Grant home, but again, nothing was found. As the missing persons investigation progressed, detectives discovered that Grant was having a sexual relationship with Verena Dirks, their live-in au pair. Apparently, the relationship began about six weeks prior to Tara's disappearance. Verena Dirks told police during questioning that she and Grant engaged in oral sex once and spent several nights together following the night Tara went missing. She claims they were just kissing and cuddling. On these nights, Verena and Grant slept in the same bed Tara and Grant shared. Dirks stated that on February 1st, prior to Tara's disappearance, Grant told her, you're beautiful, I want to sleep with you. Over the next few days, while Tara worked weekdays in Puerto Rico, Grant sent suggestive emails to Dirks, who said she laughed them off. The morning of Wednesday, February 7th, Grant dropped his pajama bottoms in front of Dirks in his bedroom and asked if she wanted to have sex. She said no, but that night they actually slept together for the first time. Dirks testified that she was falling in love with Grant, and for more than two weeks following Tara being reported missing, she withheld information from police and kept talking to Grant in secret. Dirks also testified that Grant seemed to enjoy the media attention from the press conferences, and he also mentioned the Dateline NBC TV show and a Detroit newspaper reporter. He kept talking about it. She said he just really seemed to revel in the attention he was getting. And in another interesting development, Dina Hardy, a former girlfriend of Grant's, turned over to the Detroit News recent flirtatious emails that she had received from him. In these emails, he made comments like, I don't care about being married, saying it's a no conscience thing, and said marriage vows are like speed limits that should be broken once in a while. Grant even offered to let Hardy, a nursing student, practice sponge baths on him. He also commented to her that he was concerned about his wife's relations with an old boyfriend and an older man at work. Most likely he was referring to Lou, Tara's co-worker. Finally, after three weeks of ridiculously elaborate hide-and-seek by Grant, Tara's missing persons case became a murder case. Tara's remains were found and Grant was in custody. On March 4, 2007, officials announced the capture of Stephen Grant following a massive manhunt. Stephen Grant was found in Emmett County at 6.50 a.m. Sunday morning. 
local and federal law enforcement agencies found Stephen Grant inside the Wilderness State Park in northern Michigan. Officials airlifted him to Northern Michigan Hospital for health concerns. On Sunday, March 4, 2007, at the Northern Michigan Hospital, Stephen Grant waived his Miranda rights and his right to speak with an attorney. Stating that he was tired but felt okay, he proceeded to give a detailed confession to Detective McLean and Detective Kozlowski. These two detectives exercise unbelievable patience while they go through the painful, tedious process of extracting from Grant the details and timeline of his grisly acts. Throughout his confession, Grant continuously repeats himself, stammers excessively, mixes dates up over and over again, and claims that he just didn't know what to do and doesn't remember a great deal. The following includes excerpts of Grant's confession taken directly from the interview transcripts. Detectives started out by telling Grant that they have spoken to everybody in his life, including his children. This was intended to put Grant on notice in an effort to minimize his lying. Grant began by saying he and Tara had been fighting over her frequent business travel for quite some time. On Friday night, February 9th, it all came to a head. Prior to that Friday night, Tara had told Grant that she would try to get to a point where she didn't have to travel as much. But when she got home and began unpacking, the subject came up again when she said she was going to have to go back to Puerto Rico on Sunday to be there on time for an early morning meeting on Monday. Tara said that her coworker Lou would also be going. This announcement triggered a huge argument. Grant began yelling at her, accusing her of spending too much time with Lou and not enough time with her family. He even asked her if she was having a sexual relationship with Lou, her co-worker. According to Grant, she said, quote, I gotta do what I have to do in my job. It's none of your business. At this point, she started to turn away from him, but he grabbed her by the wrist and yelled, Stop. Just stop. You're not going anywhere. We're going to finish this conversation. She responded by slapping him. This argument took place in their master bedroom at the doorway to the bathroom. When Tara slapped Grant, he responded by hitting her. In fact, he hit her so hard, she fell down and hit the back of her head on the hard bathroom floor. Tara was not only injured, but angry, and told him that she had had it. She was done with him. She was taking the kids, and he was going to be homeless. She also called him a piece of shit. When she tried to get up off the floor, Grant pushed her back down and began choking her. According to Grant, Tara continued to taunt him, telling him she was going to call the police. He continued to choke her and even recalled that there was a time when she realized he wasn't going to stop. Tara tried to fight back, scratching at Grant, but he was just too strong. He stated that when he was choking her, he covered her face up with his gray underwear or t-shirt. He can't remember exactly. He only remembers that the clothing didn't belong to Tara. He said he choked her until she stopped breathing and that was how he knew she was dead. After she stopped breathing and moving, he went downstairs and started crying. He said he was worried, really worried. He sent a text to Verena telling her not to come home. He can't remember what time it was when all of this happened, but it was late Friday night. It's not clear where he expected Verena to go, 
since she actually lived in the home with the family. At this point, Grant is panicked and terrified that Verena is going to come home and see everything. He knows that he needs to hide Tara fast, so he leaps into action. Quote, And then I put something around her neck during this time. I don't remember what. A belt or something. I don't remember what. I just don't remember what it was. And it did. I know at that point if... If she didn't die, then I would, because I'd already put my hand on her neck. I knew I'd hurt her bad, and I wrapped something, a belt, or something around her neck. I think it was my brown leather belt. I know she wasn't breathing still. She had stopped, but I I didn't know what to do. I had, I had to have something to move her with, and I knew I couldn't carry her. She was too big. So I wrapped that around her neck, and I used it to pull her downstairs. Unquote. Of all the possible ways he could have gotten her downstairs, tying a belt around her neck and then dragging her by that belt sounds more cruel than efficient. To me, it shows his total lack of regard for her in any way, shape, or form. According to Grant, Tara was wearing black pants and a silver shirt at the time of her murder and definitely wasn't breathing or moving as she was being dragged down the stairs. Next, quote, I put her in the back of her truck and I was, I, I don't think I had any clothes on. Like I said, I was, when this whole thing started, it was so fast. It was, you know, I was in the bedroom already. I was undressed and I, I was ready to go to bed and it just kept getting worse and worse. And when she smacked me, I, I lost it, unquote. He also states that it wasn't just the traveling that was an issue for them, but that Tara, for as long as he can remember, has belittled him. He said that she knew if she hit him, he would hit her back. When Grant begins to hide Tara's body, he literally drags her down the stairs using the belt, which he has strapped around her neck, and then shoved her into the back of her truck. As he is maneuvering her in the garage, he drops her. Quote, she was too hard to pick up, and the belt slipped or broke. And she fell, and it was the most disgusting. Like, it sounded like dropping a watermelon on the cement. There wasn't any twinging or anything. I knew that I had killed her. I didn't know what to do. I think that the only thing I could think of to do was hide her. I hid her in the back of her truck in the cargo area of her white Isuzu trooper." Unquote. Then he took the cargo liner from his own truck, a Jeep commander, and used it to cover her body which was in the back of the cargo area of her Isuzu trooper. Tara was lying there on her side with one leg pulled up. Within minutes of covering her up, he heard the garage door opening. Apparently, Verena was coming home after all. Grant ran upstairs put some pajama bottoms on, and walked back downstairs. He called out to Verena to just go, but Verena was confused and thought he was talking to Tara. Then he invited Verena to come on in while he quickly covered, saying he thought she was Tara who had just left. When Verena asked where Tara had gone, Grant told her that she had gone back to the airport. Grant went on to tell Verena that he and Tara had argued and Tara had left him. When detectives asked him where Verena slept that night, he couldn't remember. 
He couldn't remember if they slept together or if she went to her own room. But he admits that the next morning, on Saturday morning, she did sleep in his room. On Saturday morning, using his Jeep, Grant went out and ran errands. He went to the bank and to the post office, all while Tara is lying dead, stuffed in the back of her Isuzu, locked up in the garage. Quote, Um, and I didn't know what to do. I thought about it all day, on Saturday, about what I could do. I planned to get up Saturday night and hide Tara somewhere. Um, but I didn't know. But it was too cold, and I knew I wouldn't be able to hide. So on Sunday morning, I took her to the shop. I told Verena I had to go into the shop to do something. And um, I took the truck in and called my dad to make sure he wasn't going to be coming in on Sunday. And he said no, he was somewhere. And I said okay. And I called him back just to make sure because I didn't want him walking in on me. And I, there was a plastic tarp that was at the house and I had taken that with me. And I had taken, I had taken my bow saw, like a tree cutting saw and thinking that would do it, that I could, that the problem was, it wasn't like she's lying flat or curled up in a ball, you know? One of her legs was like kind of out to the side and arm was out to the side and she was much bigger than, unquote. Grant stated that Tara was stiff and hard to move. When he got to the shop, he backed the vehicle into one of the bay doors. Once he got inside the shop, he described the following. Quote, I closed the door and there wasn't enough room, so I had to move everything that was in the shop, like away. And I put the piece of plastic down and I put her on the piece of plastic and then I pulled the truck out so it wouldn't be sitting in there while I was doing what I was doing. And I uh, weighted the four corners of the plastic sheet down with pieces of steel from the shop and I tried to cut something, her hand, with the bow saw, and it wouldn't do it, and I started panicking. Um, I washed my hands off, and I went to the car, or I went to the truck, and I had brought something with me, a blanket or something we had, had a pint we had at the house, and a couple of big gulps off of that, and then I shredded everything that was in her briefcase. And by the time I was done shredding everything, I decided, okay, now I can do this. And I went back over and I couldn't do it. So I took her laptop computer and I put it in the bandsaw and I cut it into pieces, but the disk drive shattered and there's glass everywhere. And I had to clean that up. And then I had to move all of the steel out of the way again because there's little pieces from the box of the hard drive everywhere. And I got a piece in my finger. I had to get a tweezer and pull it out and I'm like, oh my God, there's blood here now. And I panicked. I just didn't know what to do. And I had on the black, those Solomon clogs, the same ones I had on in the woods yesterday. Um, did you ever find the shoes? Not that I care, unquote. Grant then went on to explain that he had taken Tara's purse and cut it into small pieces. He chopped up her computer, her computer bag, and shredded documents and files. He emptied the contents of her suitcase along with all the other items he had collected, including her cell phone, and put everything in a cardboard box and plastic bag so he could dispose of it later. 
While he's doing all this, he stated, quote, I'm thinking I killed my wife. I killed my wife. I killed my wife. What the hell do I do? And I was panicked, absolutely panicked. When detectives asked Grant where he disposed of the items, he said, quote, uh, I grew up on Riverland Drive, Sterling Heights. There's some apartments, and in the back corner of these apartments, um, I couldn't remember if, if there was a big dumpster and I had driven through. It's got all underground parking under the buildings. And in the very back corner, I was, after I had driven in the first one, I saw that there were dumpsters at every stairwell, or approximately every stairwell or something. So I went back to the very back one and I threw the, I think I put it in the plastic bag, everything. And I had thrown that into that one. And then the cardboard box, I was going to throw that out the window as I was driving. I thought that would be a good way to disperse of it. But there was too much traffic on Sunday. Um, and then on Monday, so I took the box out and I threw it out in another dumpster over by the Peachtree Tennis Club. My dad used to live in the Peachtree Apartments." Unquote. He says he dumped the box and bags in dumpsters on Monday, but Sunday when he was at the machine shop, quote, and I had tried to cut something, her hand or something to make her smaller, and I had taken a bucket with one of the storage buckets at the house, and we had four or five empty ones. When detectives asked for clarification regarding his use of the term bucket, he told detectives that these were like the big Rubbermaid storage containers. They were not actually buckets. Quote, And I had a blue one. Um, it was a blue one and some garbage bags, and I brought that sheet of plastic. I had one at the house. I kept thinking, I can't go buy any plastic because then it's going to look funny. Oh, he's at Home Depot buying plastic. This actually drew laughter from the detectives as noted in the transcripts. So I looked around the shop. I was looking for something. I was looking for a hacksaw or something and we had a big bandsaw. I thought, I'll use the bandsaw. And I'm like, no, you can't use the bandsaw. It's going to be too much of a mess. So I remembered that my dad had, he needed a hacksaw for something, and he had one of the bandsaw blades break. They, um, they stay straight, perfectly straight. They're like an inch wide, and they're 10 teeth per inch, and they're high carbon steel. So I took one of the ones, and I broke it, and I snapped another piece off, and I wrapped a washcloth around or a blue towel around it, and I started cutting with that. And it worked, but then it got dull fast, so, but it was used blades. So I thought if I had a new blade and the same thing. So I got a new blade and broke it in pieces. I folded, I got the big coil and I folded it and smashed it in the vise and broke it. So now I had six thins and I cut Tara's hands off and I cut her next joint, and the next joint, and at some point I threw up, um, and I threw up again, and I drank some more whiskey, and then I just told myself, look, 
if you don't do this, you're going to prison for the rest of your life. And I kept cutting her. Unquote. Detectives asked Grant what he did with the body parts after he cut them off. He stated, quote, left them sitting there on the tarp. When they asked about the blood, very little, like very little. And it surprised me, to be honest. It was really surprised me. There was that little blood. Um, I couldn't get her pants off, so I just ripped the pant legs up to the waistband. And I cut as high as those, but the blade kept catching on the cloth. It would do everything else, but it wouldn't go through the cloth. And I, um, when that was done, we had some plastic bags there at the shop. We had a roll of them. Another roll that had come from the house also. That was the garbage bags I had brought. But they were real thin. So I wrapped the pieces that were in there and I um, put them all in the bucket. You mean the Rubbermaid bin? Detectives asked. Yeah, the Rubbermaid bin. The big blue bin. And then I, I put that over to the side. And I had taken everything and put them in these plastic bags. And that was still on the big piece of plastic. And then all that was left was Tara's torso. And I wrapped it in plastic. I, I put everything, I think I put newspaper in there too. At one point there was some blood. It was real thick, like, like syrup. And I, um, so I put some newspapers down just to make sure it stayed put. And I rolled it all up and I put that fit right on top of the bucket. Um, just on top of the Rubbermaid bin. It fit just inside with the rest of the parts that I had cut up. Detectives asked, So you had Tara's entire body in one container? Grant responds, Quote, In one Rubbermaid container, yep, and I put all the dirty rags and the blades and the bandsaw blades in there also. Even the ones that I hadn't used, I put put them all in there. Um, and then I went and I cleaned the floor because I ripped a couple of spots in the, yep, I ripped a couple of little holes and the blood hadn't really gotten through, but there was some body matter had gotten through. So I cleaned the floor the best I could and I kept throwing out the dirty rags in the bucket with the, in the Rubbermaid container with the rest of Tara's remains. Everything fit in that big blue Rubbermaid container. And then I put the container in the back of... And on Sunday, I had Tara's trooper because her body was in there. So I backed in. I put the big blue container, the big blue Rubbermaid container in the back um, with the empty, the garbage bag full of the shredded documents and shredded identification and all of that um, with the, the, the bag that had the the laptop computer and her purse and all that in it. I put all that in the back of the truck. Uh, I put the box that had the actual chopped up computer and phone and all that up front in the seat with me because I said I was going to throw that out. I kept worrying someone was going to see me littering and then I was going to get pulled over or something. So that's why I waited until Monday. So Monday morning I got up. Sunday afternoon I went home and I, I stayed home as much as possible. And um, so I left the container in the back of the trooper and I um, went home. 
the trooper was parked in the garage and um, by there I had taken that um, the cargo area thing from my truck and I had rolled that up and put that in a separate black garbage bag and I put that in the back of my truck in the back of the Jeep Commander. The blue container was in the back of Tara's truck still of the trooper. Um, the bag that had the computer bag and the purse and the other stuff went in the back of my truck. Um, and I was still parking Tara's truck in the garage and my commander outside and Verena, because it was cold, so she was able to keep her Mazda in the same spot. So I, on Sunday, I tried to make things as normal as possible for everyone. And I continuously flirted with Verena because I thought that was the only way I was going to be able to get through this was if she, she was a nice girl. She's still a nice girl. I kept thinking, what am I dragging her into? And then I would think, well, I'm going to get killed in prison. I don't want that. And I'd do what I had to do. If I was 15 years younger, because I had fallen in love with Verena anyhow, easily, because she was a sweet girl, and she was nice, and she was kind, and this whole time she's thinking that Tara's left me, so she's trying to be comforting, and Sunday night, Tara's body's in the back of her trooper. Yes, I put the red, we had a, a sled in the back of the garage, I put the sled in the back of Tara's trooper. Um, the blue buckets in there and I drove around trying to find somewhere to hide it um, I didn't know where I could go I, I just didn't know I kept thinking you have to think of something and I'm like I was going to put the whole blue bucket in a dumpster but I'm like no the garbage man's going to dump it out they're going to see pieces falling out and someone's going to notice something so I'm like let's bury it hide it Unquote. Detectives asked Grant about how he wrapped and stored the body parts. Were they individually wrapped? Grant responds, quote, No, there are um, somewhere two pieces in one plastic bag. There are these clear plastic garbage bags, real paper thin, like the kind they use for bottles and cans at Meyer's supermarket. Real thin, clear, 40-gallon bags. So but I had wrapped them up, rolled them up, unquote. So, at 3 a.m. on Monday morning, Grant is driving around in Tara's Isuzu Trooper with a sled and Tara's remains in the back of her own truck. He left Verena, the au pair, at home with his kids. He found a remote area he was familiar with, which was close to home. It was the Stony Creek Metro Park. After parking her truck on the side of the road, he unloaded the sled. Next, he unloaded the Rubbermaid blue bin and put it on the sled. At this time of year, there was enough snow on the ground for the sled to be pulled around easily. Quote, So I walked it up there, and I got about a third of the way in before the hill starts dropping down, and I went to the right in the woods right there. And as soon as I started going, it was like Keystone Cops. The sled took off and now I'm chasing after the sled with Tara's remains and cut up body in it down a hill. Going down a hill into the woods, it had gone down maybe a hundred yards, maybe off of there. I'm not exactly sure. It felt like farther than that, but I don't think it was that far. 
Um, and I finally got it stopped when it fell over and it spilt. So now all these pieces are now fallen all over the place. So Tara's torso I took and I buried in the snow. And then the pieces I put on the sled and I had buried that in the snow. They were all together on the sled. Um, and the torso was by itself. So, um, and then I dispersed all of the saw blades and I had a pair of black shoes that I had been wearing and um, I was standing where the sled was and I would throw a shoe and I would throw a thing just to make everything kind of disappear into the forest. Again, at the time, I'm not thinking straight. I'm like, I've got to get rid of this as much as far away from each other as possible. Shoes and blades. Unquote. Grant attempted to dispose of all these incriminating items. He threw everything into the woods randomly. Shoes, blades, rags, gloves, and razor blades. He knew he did a terrible job of hiding these things, though, so he went back to Stony Creek Metro Park the next day, on Tuesday, to try again. Quote, I piled snow up on, like the sled, um, everything's piled up on the sled, and I covered that, and I covered the torso also. It's kind of in the snow, like I said. Two piles, plus all the stuff that I dispersed throughout the woods. Um, Tuesday afternoon, um, on the way home, called Verena and told her I was going to go running. Instead of going for a run, Grant went back to Stony Creek Park. Quote, I'd driven my truck up that hill because I knew my Jeep could make it no problem. So I went down to where the bucket was dumped and I had put a pair of, Tara had bought a box of them, um, vinyl gloves for dyeing her hair. They were too small, but I got them on my hands anyway. Um, went down, moved everything around, and that's when I made the pile on the sled of the parts. And then her torso was buried separately. And then I took the blue bucket and put it in my truck, in the back of my truck, and I put it in that blue bucket so that wouldn't be sitting there because the plastic wouldn't be buried. So drove, and then I tossed in the back of my truck already where the laptop bag and her purse was, uh, the bag that had in it, and um, um, the box of the computer parts. And then I put the blue bucket in the back of my truck. And then I went to where we used to live on Cardinal in Shelby, where Powers Court ends at Shelby Road and the apartment complex, the big circle apartment complex on the lake. I don't know what it's called. It's right there on the southwest corner of 22 and Shelby Road. So I uh, went in there and I threw out the blue bucket there and I went out there. Then I went out by the shop and I, and that's when I threw the bag out. Oh no, I went from there to Riverland, threw out the bag with the computer bag and the purse in one of the, their little dumpsters. And I drove by the shop and that's where I threw out the box that had the computer parts in it in the dumpster, unquote. Grant has a great deal of difficulty keeping track of the dates and times regarding his activities, starting with the day he murdered Tara, and for the next three weeks. As he's telling his story, he goes back and forth between Monday, Wednesday, Tuesday, 
It just feels like he is deliberately trying to create confusion. On Tuesday, he returns to the location where he dumped Tara's remains and all of the other items he had collected. His intention was to do a better job of hiding the evidence. While he was parking his truck again, a man with his dog saw Grant. In fact, the dog actually chased Grant around a little bit, but the owner assured him the dog was friendly and was okay. Grant is freaking out after this encounter because he's been seen and he is about to retrieve a dead body. But he figures there's nothing he can do about it now and he needs to get those body parts. Quote, So I went out, found the sled, couldn't find the torso at first, panicked a bit, found it also, took the sled down. There's a trail in the park that goes around through in there, so I took it down like across through the woods. Once you get on the trail, it's easier to follow the trail because there's skiers tracks and stuff on it or snow tracks, something. So I figured that would be an easier way to follow that. Went about maybe a quarter mile, half mile. It felt like farther, but I could see a tree or a house up ahead of me that was lit up. So I didn't want to go too close that way. Um, I So I came back a little bit and I cut into the woods back towards the power lines because it seemed like it was real low ground there, and it was. Um, there was a lot of fallen trees. So I proceeded to take all the parts off of the sled and out of the bags, and I hid them. Uh, at first, I was going to do the same thing with the metal and just disperse them, and I thought that would be a bad idea. Um, and then I didn't know how I got the bright idea of hiding things up in the trees. And that's pretty much what I did with everything. Um, under all the fallen trees. The hands, feet, Tara's head, everything. Um, I hid it, and then I took the plastic, and I had taken a gallon Ziploc bag with me, and I put all the plastic of these empty bags that were... My hands were freezing by this point, because I'm digging in the snow with vinyl-gloved hands or vinyl gloves on. And it was... And that was when I brought the... Before before this on my way home that day to go home is when I bought the razor blades and the rubber gloves. And then I bought coffee filters too. And you're thinking, why did I buy coffee filters? Because I told the lady I was making a project, making these flowers and we're going to dye them. And that's why I needed the rubber gloves. But then I thought about it and went, oh great. Now I look like a crystal meth manufacturer. Well, that's what they always say on the news. They're always buying coffee filters and rubber gloves. And I'm thinking, oh great, now they're calling the police and telling them that I'm manufacturing. Unquote. Again, this drew laughter from the detectives, but they get him back on track by reminding him where he left off and asking him to continue. So you're back out there. You're hiding the body parts under the trees. Quote, Yep, and I put all the plastic in the gallon Ziploc bags. I've got one Ziploc bag with all of the these bags in it that previously had held body parts, and I had only used one razor blade. Um, and when I ran out there, because I didn't want to run holding the razor blade, 
So I put it up under my hat and um, then I took those clothes and I put them in a bag. Um, I took the gloves that I had on and I threw them in the river. And I took the hat I had on and I threw it in the river. And then I ran back to my truck. Um, I had on my gray Asics running shoes, the trail shoes that I wear that are actually on my feet in that picture of us on horses because they were ruined already because the horse had run into the water. So the shoes were ruined and I figured I could wear them one more time. Um, so I got in my truck. I had taken my shoes off before I got in the truck. I had, I think I had put them in the garbage. I had a paper garbage bag and I, cause I thought of it that I put in there because I knew I was going to be messy. So I took the running gloves, the knit gloves, and threw those in the water, and the hat that went in the river. The fleece, I had a black fleecy, and I put that in the bag. I had worn two pairs of tights that day, like tights, over tights, and under tights." Unquote. Grant then took off the over tights and put them in a bag. He figured with all of his precautions he should be fairly clean. At this point, he went back home after his supposed run. On Tuesday, the day before he filed his missing persons report for Tara, he also paid off $900 worth of parking and speeding tickets. He thought if he paid off the tickets, he would be less likely to pop up in any searches by law enforcement. On Wednesday morning, he is still disposing of further evidence by dumping it in various dumpsters. In fact, he's doing this on his way into the sheriff's office to file a missing persons report for Tara. Wednesday night on Valentine's Day, detectives came to the Grant home to follow up on the missing persons report. They spoke with Grant and he did let them in to look around the house, but other than their own suspicions, they didn't see or hear anything that they could act on at the time. Right after they left, Grant called his attorney although he says this person was not a criminal defense attorney. The attorney did refer him to a criminal defense attorney, David Green. Green instructed Grant not to speak to authorities and to come into the office right away. Grant didn't waste any time in going to visit Green at his office, but he got pulled over as he was leaving. He was subsequently arrested and kept in jail overnight. He was released from jail Thursday night. The detectives claimed it was just coincidence and unrelated to the missing persons case, but Grant doesn't believe it. So they go back and forth and round and round over the incident for quite some time with no resolution. Finally, the questioning resumes. Grant told detectives that for a week and a half after filing the missing persons report on Wednesday, February 14, 2007, nothing happened. Then, on the following Wednesday, February 21st, with no fresh leads to run down without the physical evidence they'd need to execute a search warrant of the house, the sheriff, Mark Hackle, announced to the public that they were going to search the sprawling Stony Creek Metro Park out by the Grant home over the weekend. When Grant heard this, he panicked. He thought, quote, I'm screwed. They're going to find that torso that at this point was still buried in the snow, close to the power lines, 
So I tried to get up Friday night and do it, and I, oh no, Thursday night to do it. And I couldn't wake up. I set my alarm, and my alarm didn't go off or something. So then Saturday morning, like 3.30 in the morning, I woke up and waited around so it wouldn't seem weird. Like 5 a.m., I located the torso. And I was worried because I kept thinking someone might see my footprints. Because the snow was crunchy by then. Hadn't, I think that was the other reason, because there was snow. And I was thinking they could see the footprints when they're searching. So I um, found the torso where it was, and I literally carried it all the way. And it was so heavy, and my legs were hurting so bad. Um, I had to dig it out. It was frozen in the ground. It was still wrapped in plastic. It was still in that clear plastic wrapped around it. I put it over my shoulder and carried it. I mean, it was frozen. She was frozen. I hid it behind a wooden lid, the wooden lid, hidden behind a tree. I tucked it in there and I ran all the way home. And then I told my mother I was going to go out and get her a cup of coffee. And then I took two big black garbage bags with me and I put it in the garbage bags in Tara's truck. Um, and then I went and got coffee. I, I'd gone over by the Caribou Coffee at 26 in Van Dyke. And I went as fast as I could because it was almost like seven. Unquote. I couldn't find any record to confirm, but Grant's mother probably came over to help with the kids because Verena Dirks, the au pair, had resigned. While Grant is out of the house under the pretense of getting his mother a coffee from a local coffee shop, he goes back to where he hid the torso. It was still in the bags he had originally packed Tara's remains in, but he put it in yet another plastic bag and then into the back of the truck. He did not get his mother's coffee. Instead, he told her that the two places he stopped at were too busy. This is Saturday, February 24th the day of the Stony Creek Metro Park search. At around noon on Saturday, Grant drove with the torso in the back of the truck to his father's shop. After putting the torso into three or four more plastic bags, he proceeded to hide the torso in a room above the office ceiling, but just under the roof. It's described as a loft area. So it's on the inside of the shop building. Although he was worried that it might thaw out, he still left it there until Thursday night March 1st, the night before the search of his home. Grant continues to change and or mix up the days and times of everything that happened as he recalls events to detectives. He starts out explaining which events took place on Friday and then corrects himself saying it was Thursday. No, Saturday. Authorities searched the Stony Creek Metro Park, a wooded area very close to the Grant home on this Saturday February 24th, but again came up empty. When the search came up empty again, Grant was ecstatic. He actually thought he had gotten away with it. Quote, I thought, I thought for sure. And then I couldn't believe that that morning I was able to run out there, dig up that torso and hide it in the back of the car. You have to understand, I was shocked. I mean, absolutely shocked that I didn't get found out. So now it's from Saturday, February 24th, it's in there. 
Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, February 28th. Nobody has searched anything. I kept thinking, now what do I do? The torso is in the shop. It's got to get disposed of. So I figured the parts were hidden. If you didn't find them, they were hidden real well. So I figured, okay, um, and I, it must have been Thursday. It was Thursday during the day that I put the torso in a green bucket. On Thursday, March 1st, Grant went back to the machine shop and retrieved the torso, which was now inside of a big green Rubbermaid plastic storage bin. Apparently, the original blue container was damaged when he lost control of the sled the first time he was out in the woods hiding body parts. He shoved the container with the torso into the back of Tara's Izuzu and went home. Back at the house, he pulled the truck into the garage and unloaded the plastic container. He pushed the container into a spot he had already cleared off earlier, just for this purpose. While Grant is running around playing his gruesome shell game with Tara's body parts and her torso, a discovery is made. On Wednesday, February 28th, Sheila Warner was walking in the woods of Stony Creek Metro Park behind the Grant home. The woods had already been searched earlier by police, but they didn't find anything. Sheila discovered a Ziploc bag in the woods near the Grant home, which contained latex gloves, metal shavings, and blood. She immediately reported her findings to the police. Grant worked part-time at a machine shop owned by his father, and it would be quite common to have traces of metal shavings on your clothing and belongings if you worked in that environment. For this reason, the metal shavings provided the link authorities needed to secure a search warrant for the Grant house and the machine shop. Finding this Ziploc baggie in the woods was the big break authorities needed. Murderpedia reported, quote, in his last known interview Friday afternoon, just hours before the Maycomb County Sheriff's Office descended on his home with a search warrant, Grant talked to the Detroit News about his growing frustration with his marriage. In a wide-ranging hour-and-a-half interview with the News on Friday, Grant said he was offended because Tara treated him like a valet, and he said she was a bad mother because she didn't spend enough time with their two children. Unquote. At 5 p.m. on Friday, March 2nd, detectives and crime scene technicians from the Sheriff's Department arrived to execute their search warrant and process the Grant home. Tara was missing for three weeks by now, so they didn't have high expectations. Grant came home after work that afternoon and the authorities were in the process of searching his house. While they were searching the house, he told police that he was going to take his dog for a walk and he simply walked away. Along the way, he stopped and borrowed a vehicle from a friend who had no idea he was helping a murderer. Grant rode around in his friend's vehicle and began to plan his getaway. Detectives may not have had high expectations for the search, but 90 minutes into it, they hit pay dirt. Detective Kozlowski is the detective that made the gruesome discovery. According to Kozlowski, he and a few other detectives had moved into the garage to get out of the way of the CSI technicians. While he was standing around in the garage, he surveyed the area, looking to see if anything had changed since his last visit on February 14th. 
According to NBC News, Detective Brian Kozlowski said, quote, And I saw a green container that I, you know, was confident had not been there on the 14th. It looked out of place to me. And there was a black bag, a black garbage bag in it. And I opened up the bag and there was another bag in it. So I went through each bag, ripping them apart with my hands, and I stuck my bare hand in there and it was moist. And I saw what I thought was blood in plastic. And then I could see, you know, what was a bra. Unquote. CSI technicians were called over to identify the findings. They were able to confirm the container held a female torso with no head and no limbs. It was believed to be Tara Grant. As soon as this discovery was made, they naturally wanted to speak with Grant, only to find out that he was nowhere to be found. Grant was on the run. While his home is being searched, Grant left and began to plan his escape. Driving around in the truck he borrowed from a friend, he snuck over to his sister's house while she was out. He was looking for a 38 caliber handgun, which he thought was there. He claims he was going to shoot himself. He never found the gun, but he did find some Vicodin, which he stole from her. He stated that since he couldn't find the 38, he began looking for something else that would help him to kill himself. At this point, he's driving all over the place randomly, thinking this will make it harder to find him. He's turning his phone off and on so he can't be tracked. And he is trying to figure out where he's going to go. He tried to get a hotel room, but each of the hotels he stopped at had no vacancies. And then Grant remembered that he'd visited Wilderness State Park before which is about 200 miles from his home. He decided that this would be a good place to go and hide out and kill himself. Grant said he thought about turning himself in, but just couldn't bring himself to do it. Instead, he went to Rite Aid and bought a prepaid cell phone. Grant pulled into a rest stop so he could get the phone set up. He put in the SIM card, entered all the various numbers required, and used the payphone to call and register the phone. When he did this, he found out that it could take anywhere from 24 to 48 hours before the phone is usable. Quote, I wasted all that time to find a phone, and it's still going to take a day, so I'm not going to be able to say goodbye to anybody. So I drove into Lansing, and that's when I bought the sleeping pills. I stopped three times. I bought sleeping pills and razor blades, a toy gun, a sharpie to make the red end of the toy gun black because I figure if it came down to it, I'd point the toy gun at the policeman and he'd shoot me." Unquote. While Grant was at Meyer's supermarket buying sleeping pills and razor blades, but prior to making the actual payment for the purchase, he imagined the checkout clerk questioning him out of concern for his well-being. So he thought it might be best to use self-checkout. Again, there's laughter. At this point, Grant's intention is to head up to the Wilderness State Park. He and Tara had been to a spot in the area before, and he was headed to that same location. Grant had also purchased some whiskey and some Bailey's liquor. When he reached the entrance to the park, he began drinking. He had already taken a good amount of the Vicodin, so he was feeling it. He wasn't at the park long before he decided to go back to town and buy more alcohol. 
which he planned on drinking with his sleeping pills. Again, back at the park, he said he tried to write a letter to his kids but couldn't do it. So he left his truck, he took his Myers shopping bag with him. In the bag he had his liquor, sleeping pills, writing tablet, and pen, and he began walking into the woods. Quote, Um, I had, um, I know that I walked in the woods and it was just too hard going. I know I'm getting far enough away from the car to die. Would someone find me was my concern. And I wasn't running from anybody. I was just trying to get far enough that by the time they tracked me down, I'd be frozen stiff. Um, that's really it. I, I might have stopped. I have no idea. I don't remember stopping and going, but... Unquote. On Saturday, March 3rd, the day after Tara Grant's torso had been discovered in a bin in the family garage, search teams went back to the Stony Creek Park. Sheriff Hackle said, quote, Boy, when they started walking through that field, there were some pretty gruesome discoveries. Unquote. Not far from where the hiker had come upon the bloody Ziploc bag, they began finding blood, hair, and dismembered body parts scattered about, under fallen tree limbs, down in hollows. Grant had cut his wife into 14 pieces. Police found 11 parts in total, but they never did recover all the remains. At the time of Grant's interview in the hospital, they still had not located all of Tara's remains. Grant offered to help, but according to authorities, animals had gotten there first. Finally, detectives had Grant review some of his earlier responses to provide clarification, and then they concluded the interview. They asked Grant if he wanted to add anything else before they left. He said, no, I'm pretty sure I've told you everything, but it may be out of order. Hmm. Eric Smith was the prosecuting attorney, and NBC News reported the following. Eric Smith stated, quote, I don't see an argument. I see a beating. He picked that very calculatingly, that it makes him look good. Here's my wife. She's out of town all the time. I'm this poor husband sitting at home taking care of my kids. I'm Mr. Mom. This jury of 16 people... We had to bring them back to reality real quickly to show them what this case was actually about. It was about sex. It was about Stephen Grant wanting to replace his wife with his au pair. And something that was really telling in this entire case is the first thing he did after murdering his wife was pick up a cell phone and text the au pair saying, You owe me a kiss. Unquote. A jury found him guilty of second-degree murder. Prosecutors had sought a first-degree murder conviction, but the jury couldn't unanimously agree that Grant's actions were premeditated. The defense was seeking a sentence of 15 to 25 years, but Maycomb County Circuit Judge Diane Druszynski agreed with the prosecution recommendation of a sentence of 50 to 80 years for the killing. In her sentencing of Grant on February 21, 2008, Judge Diane Druszynski far exceeded the state's sentencing guidelines and handed down 
a virtual life sentence, citing among other reasons the depravity of Grant's psychological damage to his young children. Grant's first opportunity for a parole hearing won't come until he's 87 years old. The judge called Grant's actions demonic, manipulative, barbaric, and dishonest. Grant also received six to 10 years for mutilating the body of his wife to run concurrently with the longer sentence. In response to the verdict, prosecuting attorney Eric Smith stated, quote, Today, justice was served. Nothing will bring Tara Grant back, but also nothing will bring Stephen Grant back. Unquote. On March 30th, 2010, Grant lost his final appeal in state court, leaving intact the original sentence of 50 to 80 years. The Michigan Supreme Court affirmed the lower court's decision. As tragic as this murder was, Tara wasn't the only victim. In addition to the extreme emotional trauma of family and friends, Grant's dad committed suicide. William L. Grant, 66, Stephen Grant's dad, committed suicide at his home in Cupac, Michigan. He called 911 to report the suicide. When the operator asked whose suicide he was reporting, Grant allegedly said his own. Deputies said they heard a single gunshot when they arrived at the scene, and William Grant was inside the garage, still breathing. He died three hours later while being treated at the hospital. Tara's sister, Alicia, won the custody battle with Grant's sister for the two children. Thankfully, these two children, Lindsay and Ian, are being raised by Tara Grant's sister, Alicia Standifer, and her husband, Eric, in Ohio. Lindsay Standifer is now almost 21. She's a student at The Ohio State University. Her focus is on the future, but it's also a reminder of her past as she studies pediatric psychology. Ian Standifer is now 18 and a college freshman in Wisconsin. Both of these kids, who were only four and six at the time of the murder, have not had any communication with their father and have made it very clear they have no desire and no need to have any communication with him. Both kids are involved in domestic violence awareness programs. You never know what you're going to find as you take a leisurely stroll through a wooded park. In this case, it was a Ziploc baggie stuffed with evidence which cracked the case wide open. And that will do it. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you like what you heard, please hit subscribe or follow wherever you're listening or leave a five-star review. You don't even have to say anything. Or mention Crime Happens on your favorite social media app. Crime Happens is a completely independent production and your help is very much appreciated. Also, we can be found on Instagram at crime-happens and our website crimehappens.com. See you back here real soon with an all-new episode. Ah!